The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. All right, episode 111 presented by Blue Wire Podcast. This is an episode I did a while back. I believe it was early spring training with an, a major league legend. He came across my timeline. I had to get him on. Eight years in the big leagues. Incredible stories about Roy Holiday, Orlando Hudson, and the Alex Rodriguez fight with the Toronto Blue Jays. It's electric stuff. Can't wait for you guys to listen to it. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on all platforms, whatever it is. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at officially unofficial pod. Now let's cut it to the electric interview with MLB legend Josh Towers. Welcome back to Official Unofficial. I'm your host, the former face of junior college baseball, the fall American Johnny Junta, and we're here with a special guest. I grew up watching this guy as a kid. Little Johnny Junta would watch this guy playing at the Rogers Center. He played eight seasons in the major leagues for the Baltimore Orioles, Toronto Blue Jays, and New York Yankees. Is that good? It is my pleasure to welcome Josh Towers to the Officially Unofficial podcast. How's it going, brother? Yeah, brother. You're being very nice. You're being very nice right now. I like it. <laughs> I had to, I had to, because then obviously I wanted to go into it right at the start because you played for the Toronto Blue Jays back in the day when it was John Gibbons. They had the maybe the ugliest jerseys in Major League history. And so I wanted to go in that. What was your time like in Toronto? Because I hate those jerseys to this day. Disgusting. You know, it's funny. I look in the garage because I have like the some of the jerseys from that era of mine and some of the guys. It seems like every year, 03, 04, 05, we had a different jersey every year. Yeah. One, it could have been 04 was the worst jersey in the history of the game. I agree with you, but we like every year like we had something new for some reason. We're trial and error. What was your time like in Toronto, man? Because obviously the centerpiece in Toronto, that's when the Leafs were good. Like in the early 2000s, the Leafs are good now, but they were really good back then. So you guys kind of got the back seat to the in Toronto sports. So what was like your impression of just Toronto, the city, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, you know what's funny is I think I lived at the Soho for a couple of years, and I remember like looking out the window one night, they're like shaking cars and stuff. Yeah. Over- tearing it up because at least we're doing well um you know that you know it, it's funny because there's never any like we you know you root for the teams in your city and you know even to this day i still want to see the leafs do well and i'm not really a big hockey fan we got the knights here yeah, yeah but i still kind of root for them because of how cool it was just to be in that city um and then seeing the raptors win not too long ago was pretty awesome as well uh toronto was amazing it's one of the most amazing cities i've ever seen like for a lot of years people always told me like they didn't want to come play in toronto they just wanted to visit it yeah, uh, 
understood that until I got there. And then you see how great that place is uh, top to bottom. It was, I, I loved it, man. I mean, I, I could have had more fun there. It's honestly, it's an underrated city. And you hear all these, all these like reporters and all that kind of stuff say, why does someone want to play in Toronto and do all that travel? It's because Toronto, you have it different. I say this all the time on the podcast. You have a whole country rooting for you compared to if you played for the Orioles or if you played for the Yankees, you have a city. In Toronto, when the Blue Jays are good, dude, it's fucked. Like, there's the whole country is rooting for you. It's bananas. The Rogers Center gets filled. And you saw it like three, four years ago with the Blue Jays, right? It's insane. The atmosphere, like the the way the stadium's built, the noise level when there's, when there's actually packed seating, it's a whole different sound and like feel. And you go to other places where there's cheers and booze. It wasn't like that in Toronto. Like you always felt the warmth whenever we were good and, and people deserved to come watch us play. Like it, the, the turnout was amazing. And then the people are just quality people compared to a lot of other places where, again, you get both sides of it. And that's fun. Like having people be negative on you, so it's, it's pretty exciting as well. Yeah. And having that fans in Toronto and what they actually brought was amazing. And you're right. We go to Seattle and we have the same turnout in Seattle. Yeah. Country. like that should happen you don't get that here in the states because we have teams everywhere you're right like having a whole country behind you was kind of neat it's a whole different experience but i think a lot of people honestly about the truth don't go to toronto because of the taxes <laughs> yeah it's pretty bad man it really is i wonder like and obviously i'm not a math guy but i seriously wonder how much george springer is going to end up losing on that deal because he signed for a shit ton he's probably going to be losing a pretty good amount right yeah he's <laughs> You hate to see it. You hate to see it. But the next thing I wanted to bring up is, is obviously we'll go back on the Jays talk, but you're living in Vegas. So I have to ask you, I'm a big Vegas guy. I always go there to visit uh, my buddies. How big of a degenerate gambler are you? Big gambler guy? Like what's going on here? Trying to get me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> God, actually, I was, I mean, anytime you, I mean, I've been here 20 years, so it slows down really, really quick in the beginning. You know, you try to, you want to see all the places and you want to, you know, gamble, you want to go eat, you want to go to the clubs, you want to do all the different things, and, and you do, and then you kind of get burnt out quick. And then you realize that you can't do that very often. The one thing that you you realize quick in this town is it never ends. There's always tomorrow. And so there's no need for us here to chase anything or to go overly do anything as somebody who lives here because I can do it tomorrow. Or why don't have to do you might come in a month and you tell me you're coming in a month and I'll have to do anything for a month and I'll come see you for a night or two and I can have fun. I don't like you don't have to chase anything anymore. To be honest with you, the only time we ever go to the strip really is if we're going to like somebody's restaurant or something that we know, or if we have friends in town, because we have everything here too. Yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely noticed that element, especially when I go visit these guys, it's like, obviously for me who don't, doesn't live there, I'm like amazed by how sick like the strip is and how cool all the casinos are and shit. And I'm a degenerate gambler. So I obviously see it, but like there to them, it's just like what it would be like for the Rogers center for us. It's just a random thing that's just there and they don't really go there unless they have to. Correct. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I was always asking my buddy Eric, who played for the Jays as well. He made the triple A with the Jays. Um, we leave early for everything. We're going to leave five, seven minutes before the night's game's over. I'm going to leave early before the, the final set of a concert. And I always knew why, but I always asked him why we do it. And he goes, because we get to come back tomorrow because everybody else has to go home. Yeah. So, uh, like, you just, I mean, it's just an amazing place here where everybody and everything comes here. And again, we have it every night. That's like, if you start chasing the city, you're going to die. You're not going to live here very long. It's, and I honestly, man, like a uh, funny story. I got my first tattoo in Vegas. I, I was 18 and it was like a, it, and I remember I was telling my mom and she thought I was like pimping myself out to get tattoos. Cause I was just like, there's this guy who's a pro gambler who I'm buddies with. 
and he paid for it. And it's like a, the Toronto skyline on my chest. And I was just obviously a little bit on the drunk side, but dude, Vegas is the dream, man. Like, do you talk do you, when you tell people you're from vet, like you live in Vegas stuff, do you always get the same reaction? Like, man, how the hell do you do it? Because I just be out every single night. Every time you say that, someone's like, really? Or how do you do it? Like, are you always on the strip? I'm like, no, we don't like actually go to the strip very often anymore. Like it's, there's a big town that circles that strip that's it's pretty amazing and it never stops growing. I mean, we're going to get the state line pretty soon. Uh, but no, you do get the same reaction. It's the same thing with sports gambling. Like we, you know, obviously sports bet and and had done that for a while and got involved with with VEASAN here. So Vegas Stats Information Network, we talk sports gambling. Even that you can't chase because like you, you get into the habit of wanting to gamble and then you're like, oh, I got to make a bet today. I got to make a bet today. I don't have to. I can sit and wait three weeks for something that you've been anticipating. I can watch baseball for a while. I'm like, there's a game coming up that you have a complete edge on, and I can wait a month for that game or three weeks or two weeks for that game. Like, you don't have to do it every day when it's in your back pocket. And going into gambling, do you like? Do you ever have this moment? Because I always have these moments where I'm gambling, and I'm like, I cannot miss right now. Like, when you have, the, when you have that moment, just describe to the people, especially a guy like you, because – you live in Vegas. You get to physically see the bet slips and shit. We don't. Like, we have to do it virtually on our phones. How electric is that feeling to just be so dialed in? You just keep going to the kiosk and just keep printing that fucking bet slip and just cashing out money. I mean, it's an electric feeling. It's a great feeling. See, I mean, that's the, the, like the true, like, almost science behind sports gambling. Like, there's so many different philosophies uh, that people have. But, listen, when you're hot, you have to capitalize. You got to be willing to up your bet a little bit. On the flip side, when you're not going well, you got to be willing to back off. You can't force it to try to get lost money back. And it, it, that's probably the hardest bet of all of this is, is trying to decide how – it's just like blackjack or something. When you start to get good cards, man, you want to press, press, press. Well, I mean, those are the chances you have to take, but you also have to be educated in it. But when you feel like you're going good, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice feeling. And, dude, and all, the thing that I love about Vegas is, is when, I, when I went there, I went there to see Bryson Stahl. We're playing roulette. And there's this guy who swore he had it all figured out. Like, this guy came up to us. He's like, dude, I got it all figured out. So, honestly, it was one of the craziest things. I don't think I ever told the story on the show. But he was – he just looked at me, and he's like, you're from Toronto. Kawhi's number two. I'm going to put whatever. Like, this guy had, like, $500 on black and just kept – every time he'd win on black, he just kept keeping the money on black, and it kept hitting. So, he was like, you're from Toronto. I'm going to put whatever, $50 on two. Or I don't know what the max was at the time. And the, it spins around. Hits two, we go fucking bananas. And then the next spin, he says to the dealer, what's your favorite number? She said, I don't remember, 17. He puts $50 on 17, it hits. And this guy was up like 60 grand. And then he's like, guys, I got it all figured out. I'm not stopping until I'm at 100. And then we never saw him again. I'm assuming he lost it all. That, 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 that's Vegas. That's one of the hardest games in the world. I, I have a philosophy on like certain numbers to hit and you play these next four numbers for the next three spins, whatever. It's pretty funny because I've seen them have success, but it's completely different. Like that's dumb luck. And I like Vinny Chol, if I remember Vinny Chol, I don't remember where we are in the, in the country, but we were playing roulette somewhere in this country. And he, oh no, you know what? It was actually here in Vegas. He came to visit at New York, New York. And I don't even think he took his bags to his room yet. I think we had them at the <laughs> And he's doing the same thing. He's like, I've never seen it before because it's so it's such a hard game and it's so random to pick numbers like that. I mean, there's a there's a science to that as well. And he just starts popping off. Hey, what's your what's your favorite? 17. I think I heard you say 17. 17 is gonna hit. Boom, and it hits. And I was like, this dude, this dude, right a dream last night. 23 was gonna hit. Hey, you gonna roll 23 right here. And he does it like five times in a row, and she hits like five numbers in a row, and people are going crazy. <laughs> 
away with the money because it was a good start to his vacation. But it was the dumbest thing because they were the most random numbers to a dream where he just made up a number on the spot and it just happened to hit. Never have I seen it before. Dude, it's insane. It's insane. And I also wanted to bring up, uh, I believe your son plays at Liberty High School, right, in Las Vegas. Is that correct? Is he, do, we got a little, do we got a big leaguer on the way here? Or what's going on? I'm listening right now. <laughs> uh, he's pretty good, man. He's, uh, he's going to college in L.A., Loyola Marymount University. Yep. After this year, this is his senior year. Um, so we'll see. I mean, listen, you, you, you don't know. This, this is a tough game, and, and there's progressions, and there's levels for reasons. And, you know, people continue to grow. There's so many different reasons why people succeed or don't succeed or, or continue on or don't continue on. Um, all I can say is right now he's going to college, and he's 20 times better pitcher at this age of his life than I ever was. Okay. Dude, yeah. it's – yeah, it's insane. And you see it. Obviously, you saw it in Las Vegas. There's a kid, actually, that I wanted to bring up. I believe he's pitching at Cal from Las Vegas. Do you know who I'm talking about? He's at Cal now. He went to Desert Oasis. He oh, throws like 98. Dude, this guy's a freak. Uh, what's his name? I don't know. I, my son knows. I don't know his name. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So, anyways, do you see these kids now in high school and look back at when you were playing like, man, I, some of the guys that, that were good back in the day wouldn't even crack a roster or a starting spot now. These kids are throwing 99, 98, man, at 18 years old. So, yeah, it goes back to my son and, and – and his best friend, who's probably going to be drafted pretty high in the draft this year, he's in high school, obviously, both seniors. And and he's already training at the facility that I trained at with a lot of Major League Baseball players here in Vegas uh, at 17 years old. I didn't get to that facility until 2003, my first year in Toronto. was the first year that I actually trained like that. So these kids are they're getting bigger, stronger, earlier, years and years ahead of us. And then, you know, if I'm coaching his team, I got eight years experience in the big leagues. I didn't have any coaches like that. I mean, I had coaches who maybe played professional baseball in minor leagues or something like that. But so now like my buddy Dave Risky coaches at one of the schools, Dave's played 13 years in the big league. So not only are they working out and learning stuff at an earlier age, they're getting better coaching at an earlier age and it will always continue like that. So the progression of they should be more talented than we are. They should be physically gifted or better than we are with stuff, but now they have to still learn the baseball aspect of it, which takes me down another rabbit hole of, that's a lost art in baseball anymore. Yeah. No, dude, it's – um, and I there's some, there's a guy on Twitter that I hate. He goes by the name of Jeff Fry. Do you know who that is? He just – you love him? I love how he makes a mockery of baseball because that's what baseball really is right now. It's a mockery of itself. And Jeff just roasts all these dudes that are doing the craziest things that are have no bearing or no – like, shouldn't even be, like, the, the stuff that people are teaching, I love when Jeff makes fun of it. I love the, it. See, there's two things to that. So there's one thing where, obviously, some of the drills that he posts, I'm like, what the, what is this guy, what is this human being doing? But some of the stuff that he roasts are, like, driveline and shit, which is the reason why guys like Trevor Bauer were successful. So that's why I'm on the fence with this guy. I think driveline is also a terrible thing. I think there might be some positives in it. But, honestly, driveline's been around for a few years. How many people in baseball, major leagues, have ever been successful that went to driveline? And the answer is a half of one. It's Trevor Bauer. But Trevor Bauer's only had two seasons where he had a sub-4-1-9 ERA. is not good in our game anymore, especially over these hitters swinging and missing. So Trevor Bauer, the second year he ever had a below 4-1-9 ERA was last year. It was a shortened season, and it was also his contract year. And we all know, I'm living proof, that on contract year, we are much better baseball players. So Trevor Bauer, to me, I have no interest in. I don't think he's very good. I know people are going to hear this and go, what are you talking about? But if you just let I me, mean, he was 14 and 17 the last two years combined. Is that a winning picture? 
So he's the only dude that's come out of driveline that's had any remote success in the big leagues that I've seen, that I know of. And then you see all these other kids that are supposed to be good that where are they now? Where's, where's Forrest Whitley, the number one prospect for Houston, supposed to be in the big leagues two years ago? Where's he at? He was a driveline guy, curl up and throwing 110 off the screen. That's not baseball. That's not pitching. You can – I can teach – give it, give me 110 miles per hour. Give me 100 miles per hour. If I don't know what I'm doing with it or where to throw it or how to use it, it's irrelevant. Why like people go through driveline and have success in the big leagues? I would like them to prove me wrong. I'm not a driveline guy either. Yeah, no, and the thing is about driveline is I've definitely had – I've chirped driveline a pretty substantial amount. I actually made a video on Twitter that actually kind of blew up. I got a lot of people angry. I threw a baseball into a cage – and I said it was 108 miles an hour, but it was a calculator. And these like these these people were getting like, that's a fucking calculator. I'm like, dude, it's a no shit. It's a calculator. I'm not throwing 108. I was wearing jorts and like compression pants under my jorts, and everyone was getting pissed off. Like, dude, like obviously, I definitely agree with your aspect on what does throwing a crow hop taking like a million steps and throwing a crow hop into a fence. How does that show? I, I don't know the science behind it. I can't obviously speak about that, but I, I don't understand. I, I, I'm more of a throw gas second and work on your locations first, like working on being control. Velocity is a gift. And then it can be kind of brought out over time when we start to strengthen our bodies and do things right. And, and the body really starts to help the arm. There, there, there's a, there's a way if you have the ability already to, to increase velocity a little bit, but I mean, listen, we all have a ceiling, but that's my point. Like we throw downhill. I have to be composed. My delivery has to repeat. Everything has to break down to where my chest goes over the front knee. The ball's got to be going downhill for my release to the catcher. And you're going to crow hop a ball against the screen, throwing as hard as you can, that's elevated, that will never in this world be a strike, never look like a strike, never start as a strike. And that's supposed to be impressive to me. So then now muscle memory, you put you on the mound. You can't crow hop no more. You actually have to use the internals of what you worked on, core and everything else. And then your body's going to want to throw high because you traded high. Now you can't throw a strike. But as a pitcher, we can't go 100 anyways. I have to have the ability to add and subtract off of every pitch, especially as a starting pitcher. I can't yeah. throw – I don't care who it is in the world. Put them in a box. If I throw the same speed every pitch to you, no matter what it is, eventually you're going to find your timing hit. So it's, it's, it's such an irrelevant thing that I just – the fact that professional athletes buy into it, it, it drives me crazy. Now, if you're doing it for the shoulder strength aspect of it and you're not buying into the other nonsense, then there probably is something there. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I, for me, for instance, I would definitely look into the aspects, just the science of it. Like, I don't understand it that like enough to speak on it. I just see some of this stuff where, because obviously my, my old JUCO guys adapted to it and guys were doing driveline and there was this coach that I hated. I think he coaches with the Angels or Phillies now. And he's like posting videos of guys throwing like 103. And then I would look at their stats in the season and they would walk four batters every three innings. Like, it, it, and he, the only thing he would tweet about is, his velocity he wouldn't tweet his stats so i got pretty pissed off about that kind of shit so there's definitely guys that work for that company or not for that company specifically that preach that stuff that are absolute ass clowns like that guy who will just tweet about the velocity not actually tweet about the stats but yeah you're definitely correct on the trevor bauer thing i mean last year was definitely a good year in a contract year what do you kind of what do you what are your thought processes on what he's going go, on him going into this year like what do you see him doing in a full season well, I would like him to prove me wrong, to be honest with you. I mean, I love the Bauer aspect, how he runs his mouth, how he puts stuff on his cleats. I love how he calls people out because people need to be called out. So on the side of he's pretty intelligent and he's months ahead of, like, the moment right now, I love that stuff because there's a lot of things in baseball that happen that people need to be called out for, and a lot of us don't have the heart to do it because, oh, my God, we might get in trouble or something. I love that Trevor does it. I, I think it's a beautiful thing, and I love – 
I've always said this, man, if you're going to talk crap, make sure you're on the field talking crap. Don't be sitting on the bench hiding and not in the lineup when you talk crap. Trevor Bauer talks crap, and then he goes and takes them out. I'm a big fan of all of that. I just don't think he's as good as people are making him out to be. He's definitely not a $37 million a year pitcher. That's a but lot. Yeah. When you're pitching with David Price and Kershaw and Walker Bueller and I forgot who else is their fifth and somebody else is pretty good, uh, maybe Urias, whoever it is. Yeah. He, he, by default, he should be good on accident. The team is really, really good. So I hope that he goes and backs it up, you know, and proves me wrong. But, you know, I'm still skeptical. Two years, actually one and a half years in, what is it, six, seven-year career? It's not yeah. enough for me. And I, I, I now I want to bring up a couple of guys that I, I do a segment on my Twitter where it's random Blue Jay player of the week. And I, I just wanted to ask you about a couple guys here. The first guy that you played with that I have to ask about is maybe, not chirping him, one of the weirdest looking dudes of all time. He goes by the name of Gustavo Chassin. What's up with this dude? Like, uh, what was it like playing with Gustavo? Because there's legitimately not one highlight of him on YouTube. I couldn't even find it. I just see pictures of him all over, and I just remember his glasses and his funky delivery. I, what, what, what was Gustavo Chassin like? I love Gus, man. I loved him. And he and I had a really good year. I think it was 2005. might have been his rookie year. You know, I basically went back-to-back all year. I know I think Roy got hurt right before All-Star break, maybe in Texas. Um, and they just let me and Gus pitch, and, and we both had really, really good seasons that year. Again, contract year for me, but rookie year for him. Dude, he uh, he was quiet, man. But remember, uh, I think we had, like, some cologne. It was like cologne giveaway day in Toronto. Yes. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> uh, such a good dude, man. Um, and the next guy I got to ask you about is a guy that – legitimately came to blows pretty much with John Gibbons on the mound, like literally almost fought him was Ted Lilly. What, what was Ted Lilly like, dude? Um, Ted's still my boy. Yeah. We talk all the time. He's, he's out in Cali doing his thing, comes out here. We play golf all the time. Uh, I love Lilly too, man. Kind of a bad word to say about him. I always called it in Lilly land. That's why I said where Ted lives. He lives in Lilly land. Um, <laughs> Honestly, like on the field, he's a true competitor. I mean, what he does now with, with baseball and the youth in, in Southern California and, and, and the golf, and like he's still that. He's still a true competitor. But, you know, I think sometimes when you're really smart, you kind of get looked at as a little bit off or something. And, you know, on the mound and playing baseball, Ted's a, kind of a genius. Like he's – he might be different, but he's awesome. Dude, he pitched in the World Baseball Classic on that stacked U.S. team with Jeter, right? Do you remember when it was at the Rogers Center? I don't know if you were still here for that, right? Were you here for that? Okay. Dude, he was he's, he, he was a really good pitcher here. And I got to ask you, obviously, the next guy is, the, like, rest in peace, one of my favorite players of all time, maybe one of the most influential athletes in Toronto for baseball, was Roy Holiday, man. What was playing with the Doc like, man? I mean, this guy, what what a pitcher. If you, his stats were idiotic. Insane shit. And he always faced the best teams at the best time. Um, I don't really go on all day about Roy, to be honest with you, and, and not because he's not here, but, like, he he wasn't very vocal. He was more – you just watched him go about his business, and then you had the utmost respect for him, like – when Roy walked in the room, if he, if he walked in right now, you'd see me go like this, not sit up, you know, like, like <laughs> watch in front of him because like maybe you're doing something wrong because, I mean, you weren't going to beat him to the field. You weren't going to really stay longer than him. And you definitely weren't going to work harder than him no matter what you did. It was just like he made you want to be a better baseball player, but he also made you want to be a better person whenever you saw him just because of how he carried himself on a regular basis. And so all of us just really just kind of followed him around no matter what, you know, how long you played, who you were, you always just kind of like were following him around because there was always something that you were going to learn or, or 
not just about the game, but maybe learn about how to carry yourself. He, he was he was definitely a role model to all of us. What would you say was like the best uh, like best appearance that you saw live from Roy the Doc Holiday? Because there's so many, but there's a couple that stand out to me, like that one hitter against the Detroit Tigers. There's so many pitching performances he had, and if you look back at it, he's his stats were idiotic because that Jays lineup wasn't stacked and he would go nine innings, one run and sometimes lose or two innings and two runs and lose. So what, what was your most impressive thing that you ever saw from Roy? The problem is, is his, his Gibby wasn't allowed to ever take him out of the game. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I remember, uh, I think Roy told Kevin Cash one day, he's like, don't come to the mound at all unless I call you. To- <laughs> I'm nervous. And I remember like Gibby from the bench was like, Kevin, go talk to him. And he's like, nope. He's like, <laughs> wouldn't go oh man it was so funny uh my first year when i got called up was uh what was it oh three i think we won the Cy young that year and if i'm not mistaken he faced boston and the yankees over half of his starts um he wanted to face the best teams all the time he never shot away from them and it wasn't one performance it was the fact that i got to pitch right after roy every game that basically that season when i got called up so i got to chart the games and watch the hitters and then i would watch and talk to the hitters like the next day and you would hear like it, it made my job easier because they basically go out and get hammered because they were so embarrassed by getting sawed off by Roy and he was <laughs> and I would get I would get a more relaxed lineup and stuff where I get dudes hung over. And I remember just certain players would be like, man, I like I, I don't I, I asked to not be in the lineup when he pitches. Like I hate I hate that cutter running in my hands as a lefty. And it was just it was, it was the combination of the whole season, watching him face the best teams that he can face every day and never hot, never shine. Give me them early, give me them whenever. And then watching the reaction of the hitters the day after, two days after, just complaining that they hated facing him. Dude, honestly, like his stuff is so under. I'm so happy he got the opportunity to go to Philadelphia, win a World Series there. And I think, didn't he pitch two no-hitters in, in the playoffs? Through a perfect game in Miami. and. Yeah. and- because for his first playoff start, he always wanted to be in the playoffs. And that was part of, like, a lot of the guys' goal. Like, a lot of the guys in Toronto wanted to get to postseason just so Roy would have an opportunity to play because it meant so much to him. So him getting the opportunity to go to Philly to, to do that was awesome. I remember talking to B.J. Ryan the, the morning of his Legend. First, and it was almost like in unison, B.J. was like, you know what's going to happen today? And I was like, 100%. He's like, he's throwing a no-hitter. I was like, there's no question he's throwing a no-hitter. Like, People have no idea what that moment meant to Roy to pitch in the postseason. And it's easy to say this now, how many years later, because he did throw a no-hitter. But having that conversation with BJ that morning was just like, you felt it. Like, and, and knowing the preparation, knowing who Roy was and how he prepared and everything about it, like that team never had a chance that day. Never. And that's what goes back to like, if you're a sports better, you know, for us having a little bit more insight, but you know, you look for things like that and, and knowing that about holiday, like, there was no question what was going to happen that day. No question. Dude, I remember watching that and I was just getting chills because obviously growing up a Blue Jays fan, you look at it and you're like, that's our guy. Like, it's the same thing with, like, the Tom Brady thing winning a Super Bowl in Tampa Bay. The New England guys are like, that's my guy. Like, that's our guy. It's just I, lo- I was watching it. I was like, man, this should be at the Rogers Center in front of 55,000 just going bananas. And it's crazy that you guys didn't at least have one playoff appearance for him. You guys had some crazy teams. And I wanted to bring up, actually, B.J. Ryan, because he was a big acquisition here in Toronto. And I remember he used to come out of the bullpen, and it used to be just great. Like, literally, the stadium would go crazy. 
and he would have the fire around the stadium, right? Like, he'd have the fire. What's BJ Ryan like? I fucking love this dude. Like, I love this guy. And another one of probably my closest friends on planet Earth still to this day. Uh, so I got nothing bad to say about BJ, man. Uh, it was fun because I played with him in, in Baltimore where we got close, and then JP wanted to bring him to Toronto, and I was all about it. And then, right, like, he's just – he was built for closing, and it was awesome. And he'd play his music, and the fire would hit around the facade. And, dude, it was just – you get chills, like, having him running from the outfield. And, dude, I, I – listen, cannot say enough good things about him as well. And he's currently – his alma mater – uh, Raging Cajuns, he's actually the pitching coach for them now, and he's enjoying, like, the whole this side of it. You know, when we play, it's really about yourself and, 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 and what you have to do when you step back and coach. You know, you feel like you're, you're out there for everybody and you live and die with everybody's success. It's a whole different experience, and, and he's doing that right now at his alma mater, and he's – I'm telling you what, he's enjoying it, man. Was he so, Is he not, like, just built like a brick shit house? this guy? He looks like a fridge. He's yoked. <laughs> he's – you know, I have no idea how many times I've had some beers standing behind him popping off to somebody because they weren't going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love BJ Ryan, man. I mean, and you just brought up a name that just gives me PTSD from some of the trades that he made was JP Ricciardi. Did this guy ever take off his sunglasses? Like, he was always a sunglasses guy, right? Well, well what's JP Ricciardi like? Because he actually put us, he put it together some good teams when he picked up David Eckstein, Troy Gloss, all these guys. So, what was JP like? Uh, I love him too. Again, another guy that I talk to on a regular basis to this day. I think he's one of the last remaining, like, true baseball. You guys got a true baseball guy, Mark Shapiro, but the true baseball guys left in the game. Like, he, I mean, he gets it. I mean, he, he played, he's been through every aspect of uh, coaching, front office, GM, assistant GM, whatever the case may be. And he's been doing it for 40 plus years. It may be more, I don't even know. Um, Super smart. And, 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 and guys like that don't last if they're not willing to, to change, make transitions and, and grow with, you know, today's youth and the game and, and the evolution of everything. Um, I believe he's with the Giants still right now. And it's yeah. just, you know, I, I kind of want to see him get back in the GM role because I think it's a good place for him. I don't know if it's something that he wants, but he, he, listen, you can bring in all the right guys, but we have to at some point commit to it. And we have to at some point want to play together and, and make sacrifices. Um, and, and we just didn't do that collectively. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself in many ways when in my time in Toronto. It, it's hard. Like, you know, it, it's – when you see a team win a World Series, like there's a lot of sacrifices to the commitment of each other throughout the course of the season that gets you to that point. It's not just talent alone. Yeah, and I, the next thing I want to talk about was that year you went 13-12 and 12 with a 3 7 one ERA. Like you said, your contract year, your breakout year. What was that year like for you, man? I mean, that year was insane. You That's when you became kind of a household name in Toronto, correct? Did we lose video? No, I can I can see you now. Are you good? I see you now. Um, you still got me? There we go. Yeah, no, I got you. I got you. I got you. What were you just saying? So, yeah, the, what I was talking about was that year you went 13 and 12, your breakout year where you kind of became a household name in Toronto. You're, if there was Instagram, your DMs would have been flooding with Toronto females. But that's besides the fact that I just want to talk about that year. <laughs> what was that like, man, that you just carved? Like, that was unreal. Yeah, that's the stuff that I look back on, man. Like, as I got older and I, you know, some of it you're excited about and some of it you feel, I feel guilty about. Like, I feel like I owe Toronto a lot more. I feel like I owe the fans a lot more. Um I mean, it's just the little things, like the sacrifices, like, you know, you stayed in a lot more. You got a lot more sleep. You didn't see me out in the city as much. Like, it was more of a commitment to your craft. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, you get a little bit comfortable and next thing you know, you might be at the club a little bit more than you should never the night before you play. But at some point, like you got to stay in and, and you start to enjoy the city a little bit more because, well, you have a little bit of success and then you start seeing yourself go downhill. And it's like, you, again, the sacrifices that you have to make in order to be successful consistently, like these, these hitters are pretty good too. And they're not just going to let you have success and then not try to make an adjustment. And, and so there's a lot of on the field, off the field stuff that has to happen. And I think sometimes you get comfortable or first time you ever get paid and you never had money before and it changes you a little bit and you got to get past that hurdle. There's a lot of things that I think back that I would do differently now that, you know, with guys that are, that are playing that maybe I'm close to or something that I have now the experience of, of talking to them about. Um, I also hated, and I learned it, I learned it afterwards as well. I, I don't tell me I'm good. Don't, don't like Mark Hargrove handed me the key to the city in Baltimore after my rookie year. Like, don't do that to me. Don't like, just tell me I suck. That's why I hate Carlos Tosca, but I kind of like him because he used to tell me that I'm not good enough to be in the big leagues. Like in an 03, like you're not, you got below average major league shit and you're not even good enough to be here. And I was like, what? Watch this. And then I ended up on my eight or one or nine or one or whatever I did. And it's because I was like pissed off. I had to prove something. And I hated being like pat on the back and told you're good. And it always like, I don't know, man, I just, I just, just tell me I suck. I'd rather have everybody trying to boo me than cheer me. Like it would motivate me more. I didn't know that for a long time either. And, you know, things like that, I, you know, I would make serious adjustments to about unknown. Dude, and I think a guy that kind of gets a bad – well, used to get a bad rap here. Now he's kind of a legend in Toronto was the manager that you played for was John Gibbons, man. What was Gibby like? Because he's, he's kind of a player coach, correct? Like, but he'll also get after you? Yeah, he's a man for sure. But he also – you know, he was good at letting us do our things and saying stuff when it needed to be said. Um, another guy that I just – I got a ton of respect for. And, and we butted heads. Don't get me wrong. We butted heads too because, you know, I'd be like, Gibby, fuck – can I go past five or six innings one time, please? Like, <laughs> 50 pitches through six innings. Like, let, let me go. Like, you're never going to know if I can pitch the eighth or ninth inning if you don't let me try once, you know? And he's like, I don't – you know, listen, I don't know what it is. It's just when we get to the sixth inning, I just feel like i got to pull you out of the game. And I'm like, well, at least you're being honest with me. At least I got yeah. something to like, – you know, we butted heads. Too. I was like, John, if you keep pulling me after five innings, I'm not even going to go to the gym anymore. I don't have to work out to pitch five innings. Like, <laughs> knowing that I wouldn't do that, but – um, listen, it is what it is. He's got a job to do too. And, and, and everybody has a role and we have to define it. And if we have a good bullpen, then that's understandable if I'm the fourth or fifth guy. So, you know, listen, it's just, we all got competitive nature and, and those are the, the good relationships that you have with your manager that you can actually have those conversations. He can be honest with you. You can be honest with, with him and it, it, it helps you become a better player. And I think that Gibby was good at doing that with a lot of people. What was your guys' go-to spot as players, like the bar or the club in Toronto? Were you guys cactus club people? Like, what, what was going on there? You know what cactus club is? That might have came after the fact. It changed its name. Um, yeah, there was a few, but one of the uh, the low-key bars that, that we had a really good time at was uh, Underground. Okay. Yeah, I know Underground. Okay. So, you, got, you guys got after it, though, man, because um, there was a couple of beauties on that, like legends on that team. Like, John McDonald was there, I believe, right? John McDonald, and you guys look like a fun team. You guys were actually playing pretty well. There was a couple seasons you guys were well above over 500 without making the playoffs because the Yankees were fucked. Like the Yankees in 03, 04, and then you have the Red Sox in 04 who won the World Series. So I wanted to talk about that division for a second. Do you remember how electric it was when the Yankees would come to town and there would be A-Rod, Jeter, all these guys getting booed to their fucking core? because everyone on the fucking planet hates these dudes? Like, what, what, what was that rivalry like for you guys as a player in Toronto when there would be all Yankees fans at the Rogers Center? 
it's kind of annoying. When I got to the Yankees in 09, I was there like a week and, and Brian Cashman was like, what do you, uh, what do you think? Like, what do you think about being a Yankee? And I was like, honestly, he's like, yeah. I was like, well, it was always fuck the Yankees. I was like, I love, I love Toronto. Like you guys were always so good. It was like, like everybody just wants to beat you all the time. Like I didn't give you guys any mind outside of like, you know, you're pissed off that you're coming to town because in Toronto, you guys took over our stadium. In, in, in Baltimore, you took over our stadium. And they're like, it just, you know what pissed me off? is like they would have Matsui or even when Seattle came to town with Ichiro. And all of a sudden there would be all these new ads pop up on our walls around the stadium or something to like accommodate them. And I get that these businesses had to make money, but it was like, I almost felt like disrespected that like, all right, you guys would put a little bit more stock into a visiting team than to our own team. And I, I mean, I get it from a business standpoint and I get it because the Yankees are good and they draw well and all that stuff. But as a player, you get kind of pissed off, like uncle, like I, I, I get it. And then you sit in the stands and, and you know somebody's name. Like, Derek Jeter put enough time into where everybody, baseball, non-baseball, knows his name. Yeah. Of course they're going to draw a little better. Fans are going to follow him up. It's a vacation for them. Toronto's an amazing place to come. But as a player on the field, it, 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 it did piss you off a lot. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What would you say was like the most heated you ever got in your major league career on the mound with an opposing player? Because I love these fucking close to fighting stories. Like these are electric. Um, almost every time I faced him was Miguel Tejada. Almost every time. <laughs> I love facing Miguel. And he actually hit a grand slam off me in Toronto one time, which might have been his only hit he ever had off me. So, like, he can take that to the bank, but he might have been, like, one for 30 off me in his career or something stupid. It might be a little better than that. But Miggy was my favorite because he would get so pissed. And Orlando Hudson would always tell me, he's like, bro, he hates you. Like, he hates you. And Dude, he would like, I would throw a pitch and he'd roll out the shortstop and he would just be like, motherfucking me the whole way to first. Felt like he should have hit a home run. And I'd be on the mound just like belly laughing, looking at him and it would just fire him up more. And I just, I loved it because he just felt like, because listen, I threw strikes, it's right there. I don't knock you down, whatever. He just felt like every pitcher should have hit a home run and he never did. And he couldn't figure out why he would get out. So the one time he did hit that grand slam off me, I think it took him like an hour to get around the bases. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so personally, that was fun for me all the time facing him. Um, but Alex, you know, when, 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 when I hit him in Toronto and it caused the fights between us and the Yankees, and it actually carried over for years after that. I mean, we fought again when I was in the Yankee uniform in Yankee Stadium playing the Blue Jays. We fought again because I think Johnny Mack or somebody got hit. And it, it was it stemmed from the hatred from, from before. But, I mean, Alex was batting. And Howie Clark was at third. Johnny Mack was at shortstop. I think Pos- – no, sorry. Alex was at first. Posada was hitting. And Posada hits a pop-up to third. With yeah. Alex is running around the bases. As he gets behind Howie Clark, he yells, mine, mine, mine. So Howie immediately thinks Johnny Mack's calling him off. So Howie gets out of the way and the ball falls. And that's like something that, bro, you just don't do in this game. You don't – that's – you unwritten rules, whatever you want. That's something you don't ever do. And – I'm shocked that we didn't kill him right there. And I know Matt Stairs wanted to, and Matt had to be held back. And, and then Major League Baseball gets involved and makes it worse because 
that was the end of the series. And, and Brian Wolf came in actually in Alex's last at bat. It was his major league debut. And it was like, how are you going to ask Brian Wolf to throw it out? Rodriguez? Like he was nervous and he couldn't. And so since we didn't get, get him that game, I, I had him first game back in, in New York. And I was in the bullpen warming up, and I already know when I'm going to hit them and everything. You know, like, you know, sometimes it just – there has to be the retaliation. And if they just would have let us hit them right there, it would have ended everything. He yeah. ain't going to – it's too big of a plus to do that. He's not going to charge them out. We all know that. He's going to come out about halfway. The catcher's going to get him. It's going to look like something's nothing. It would have ended everything. And I'm warming up in the pen in, uh, in New York, and I hear the bullpen phone ring, which just never happens. And I remember Pappy went to answer the phone, and he's like, hey, it's Gibby. And Gibby like, wants to talk to me as I'm warming up for the game. And I was like, what? And he goes, hey, you can't hit Alex. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, Major League Baseball just came in. Like, you can't hit him. What? Hitting you right now? He goes, you get fine. I get fine. You get suspended. I get to the user. You're not hitting him. And I was like, Gibby, this is BS. And I just hung up on him. And I went and finished the pen. And so I'm coming through the field, and I'm pissed off. And Matt Stairs is running sprints with some other guys. And he looks at me, and he's like, why are you so pissed? You have a bad pen or something? And I told him, and he's like, then fuck it, don't hit him. And I was like, Matt, he goes, Josh, they come back to Toronto in three weeks, act like it disappeared, like nothing happened, and then drill him there. And I was like, oh, you're a genius, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to talk about that. I'm actually really happy you brought that up because that was like headline news for weeks when A-Rod did that. And I got to ask you, what was the kind of, what was the atmosphere like in the like dugout and in the in the clubhouse when A-Rod came out and said that he didn't say mine. Like, do you remember when he said that? He has to say that. We all say, like, listen, I think I said I didn't hit him on purpose. I mean, we all have to say that, right? Yeah. yeah it, he, he, listen, he crossed the line. It, it may not sound like much to to people listening, but, like, that was one of the worst things. Like, it's like the Astros and banging, stealing signs and banging the trash can. Like, it's on that level of you don't do that. Uh, you want to steal signs from second base, something like that, earn it. But to do that type of stuff, it, it just – it doesn't happen. It was uh, – again, we had a packed house, of course, because the Yankees are in town. And and, and so dude, the best part was is I was actually going to wait, and then I was pissed off because somebody hit a double right in front of him, and I got mad. And all I could think about was, like, where can I hit him that it'll actually hurt him? But, like, you don't ever throw up here, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, I can't hit him in his butt or here because there's too much padding. He ain't going to do anything. And I was just like, where can I hit him that – like, I want him to feel it. And – I knew there was going to be a fight, but again, I knew he wouldn't come out. I knew he wouldn't stop, but then there was a little bit of hatred on both sides. Um, and so I just thought, like, I'll just go down towards his leg, you know, and I was, like, looking in his knee area, and I was like, it's a ballsy play because there's not much room to hit somebody there. Yeah. But I'm not going to go high on him. That's crazy. Um, so I chose to go low on him, and I hit him, and it was kind of funny because you saw it on camera, like, after we broke up two different fights and stuff, and there were punches thrown, which is beautiful because punches don't get thrown very often. So. Mm -hmm. Anyway, someone's actually thrown a punch on the baseball field. But I remember, like, on TV, he, he had him in the dugout, and he rolls his pant up, and he has this mark on his knee. I was like, how are you going to allow TV to get this right now? I was like, it just gives us credibility. Listen, my favorite thing about the whole fight and everything was the next day in Toronto. So they were advertising, uh, like, MLB, whatever, some baseball game. And in the seventh inning stretch, they would have two kids come up and play like an at-bat on the Jumbotron in Toronto. And the next day, I remember, they set it up to where I was pitching and Alex was hitting as they were, like, doing the video game in the seventh inning stretch and the dude drills Alex. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the part about the whole thing.
do you and and obviously do you think that there was a guy that uh, or an opponent opposing player that was hated more in the city of Toronto than Alex Rodriguez when you guys were playing these guys? Because the booze this guy would get was like fucked. Like I, you couldn't even hear yourself think. I think Alex, honestly, like the image that he gave us. Like getting to know him is a different person, obviously, but the image he gave us. Uh, he wasn't just hating Toronto. He was hating every city he went to. Like everybody, players on other teams hated him just because of the way he carried himself. And then again, you got to get to know somebody a little bit before you make a true evaluation of how you personally feel about him. And it changes when, not completely, but it changes a little bit when you know him a little bit more. But the way he carried himself, the way he carried himself on the field, just the whole perception. And and I felt like he disrespected a lot of people because he just felt like he was better people. Like when I always played against him, like when he was with Texas and stuff. So like – he wasn't very well liked throughout baseball, period. Yeah. Who would you say is the best hitter that you uh, that you played against in your whole career? Like, just like a guy that you're going to be able to tell your grandkids about and shit. It's different than the guy who had the most success against me. Um, and I get this, I get, honestly, I get this question asked probably once a week or once every two weeks still. The, the two hardest hitters I've ever faced were Frank Catalanato and Bernie Williams. Um Luckily, I got to play with Cat for a long time, and I, and I learned through talking to him why he hit me so well and his, his philosophy on hitting and, and, and my stuff in particular and how he he didn't sit fastball or, or speed. He sat like his, the difference in your speeds, and he would middle it. And Cat was just genius. But Cat would come up and do whatever he wanted against me no matter what. And I remember one time in, a, in an inter-squad game in, in, in spring training, uh, I'm facing him and Menachino was at third and he walks up to the plate and he tells Menachino, he goes, Hey, I'm going to hit it right by you for a double. And you know, Frank says whatever he says. And I was like, Frank, no, he's not. I got this. And I'm like on the mountain, this conversation's going on and he's laughing and a couple pitches later, whack, right by Frank at third base for a double. And I just like shaking my head. Like I did everything in my power not to allow that to happen. <laughs> I didn't understand his philosophy on hitting. I didn't understand his philosophy on me as well, but he lit me up like nobody's business. I couldn't get him out, so I was so happy that I got to play with him. And then he taught me a little bit about why. The other guy was uh, Bernie Williams. And it's just in my head. I don't know Bernie's stats against me. I don't know if they're good or bad. But it just seemed like – and I hated this because, like, 10 pitches was an inning to me, whether I gave up a run or not. Like, it, like that's an inning. And Bernie would just come up and take, take, and he'd get a couple strikes, but I painted. And then he would just foul off and foul off. Yeah. And then I foul off. And never try to do anything. And then six, seven, eight pitches in, I would make a mistake or I'd end up walking him because he saw so many pitches or whatever. And it was just frustrating. I'm like, Bernie, you're going to get a hit anyways. Just hit the first pitch for a base hit, please, and stop wasting my time because I'm throwing you eight, nine pitches. You're fouling him off. It's pissing me off. That's costing me an inning in this game later on. And I would just get so frustrated at Bernie Williams because, eh, eh, and then whack when I made a mistake. And I was like, uncle. The legend, man. The legend, Bernie Williams. What a what a guy that guy. Oh my god, he it, when he was in New York, he was fucked. Like this guy's all obviously his stats were nasty. I think he's a Hall of Famer, but uh, no, dude. And I, I want I talked about this on the phone with you. I wanted to bring this up. So when you were a rookie, na- like nowadays the initiation's a little bit different. But when you were a rookie, man, what the what the fuck did you have to go through? Like, were you were you the drink bitch? Like, what were you doing? Honestly, I didn't have to do anything. That's the beauty of it. I got so lucky my rookie year. The only thing I had to do was, from my recollection, was um, if we were catching a flight somewhere, uh, Bop, Delano De Shields, uh, I had to carry his beer. If he if he wanted anything, like, I had to carry his beer. I had to make sure he had it, even if he didn't drink any of it. Like, I had to make sure that I had what he wanted. But he was such a good dude to me, and I got to sit in the plush seats because of him as a rookie. Like, I was his, his guy. 
that was the worst of it. Um, I actually broke my finger with three starts left in the season, hitting a phone in Toronto with my glove after Jose Cruz take me deep twice um, in, in September of, I think, 01. And so I missed my last three starts. And when they did the rookie, like, hazing initiation, like, I think we made them dress – they made us dress up in, like, Hooters outfits or something. Like, I actually didn't even travel on that trip. <laughs> no. so, so I didn't have to do any rookie stuff ever. So it was hard for me, like, in Toronto, like, to get involved of, like – and I did one year. But with, with Zani, but I, I didn't really want to get involved in like picking outfits or doing anything for the guys because I was like, I kind of got off the hook easy, man. I never had to do anything in my career. I got lucky. So, yeah, you definitely got lucky because some of these initiations were fucked. But, and I obviously, I wanted to go into the minor leagues for a second too because you played in an era, obviously, where you, some guys now, like, there's a little bit more luxuries in minor league baseball than there was back in the day. What was the most fucked city you've ever played in? Was it Clinton, Iowa? Was it Beloit, Wisconsin? Like, what cities did you play in where you're like, this is this is like a, a middle school field? Uh, well, more recently, my recollection when coaching was Lexington, Kentucky. Okay. Uh, that's a tough place, man. It's just they don't take care of it. The well where, like, the ground screw sits, is, it's just dirt and trash. And, and I, the whole stadium, I was like, how, how is baseball even allowed here? Um so that's one more recently, but there's a lot of towns throughout. I mean, you're the lower levels, but then you get some great cities too, but there's a lot of towns like that, but then you just take it for what it's worth. Like, you know, a lot of times people ask me like, what was the best part about all of it? You know, was it, was it pitching in Toronto? Was it pitching in New York? Was it the world series ring that I didn't earn, but I got was like, what was it? And honestly, it was the journey through the minor leagues was the best part about all of it. Like seeing small town, um, small town America and all these places and having like appreciation for things that you never knew existed. I mean, I grew up in Southern California. It's a completely different life than, than going to, to, to Maryland or West Virginia or, you know, Salem or Durham or any of these places. Like it was just, a, it's every city you went to was a, every three or four days was a whole new experience that you never experienced throughout four or five, six years in my league. And dude, I loved every bit of it, man. It just had you like a, a better appreciation for people as a whole. And you appreciate the show more, man. I mean, when you get to the show, you're kind of also starstruck on the luxuries you get. You're flying in private jets. You're saying that you're like, obviously, you stayed at the fucking Soho, like you're Drake or some shit. So, what? I mean, what what was that? I mean, what was your moment where you're like, I'm in the I'm in the show right now? When did you kind of have that moment? That took a while too, because even like no matter where you're at in the minor leagues, I don't care if you're a first round pick, I don't care what you are, you still feel so far away from the big leagues, and you don't know if the opportunity is truly ever going to come, no matter what. No matter how much money you get, no matter which round, you don't, you just don't know. And you're sitting in A ball, and, and the big leagues is just on TV. It's just guys, you know their names, and you get double A, and it's still just on TV. And even in Triple A, where you know you're still just a phone call away, it still feels like your world's apart. Um, and then you get the call, and you're you're right, everything changes. Like you learn to like in Triple A to keep a, a, a suit with you everywhere you go, just in case, even on the the far chance that you might get called up, because your world changes overnight. You go from bus rides to eating sack meals at three in the morning because you're starving to getting no sleep. I mean, I remember pulling up to a stadium in double A, the game was at seven and we didn't get there until 545 because things just happen. And you got to get dressed on the bus and try to go. Yeah. Like it just happens. It doesn't happen to big leagues. You know, we get police escorts and traffic in Toronto to the airport, beat it, let us go around you. Like, come on, man. Like that really happens. And <laughs> jets, but I remember even my rookie year when I had success, the first half of it, um, it took a long time. Like, I remember, like, Vinny Casilla was the first guy I ever faced. 
And I remember running on the field and it was like coming out of a video game. And I remember Ben Grieve was at second base and I just, Ben Grieve looked like he was like 10 feet tall. I remember looking up and I was like, oh my God, that's Ben Grieve. As I'm running to the mound and Cal standing on the mound with Siki and, and, and Bordick and, and Hargrove. And it's just like, it was like, like I think B-Rob maybe. And I, I just saw names on the back of the jersey. I saw Vinny Castillo. Like I didn't see baseball. And it took me a long time to, I mean, I don't even know uh, – very arrogant on the mound you kind of have to be to be successful but I don't even know if I got over that my rookie year I think I still saw like who the players were I didn't see holes I didn't see swing and differences and how to set them up I just saw names like it's just like it was a dream that you never knew was really going to be a reality and I know everybody in the big leagues you know they're stars to me and and you're facing Piazza and the Bichette's of the world and, and all these guys and it was just like it took a long time to get past that to, yeah. to focus on the team the game, the situation, what's dictating, is he hot, is he cold, what are his swing paths, what pitches work better, how we can it took a long time to get there. For sure. And what and when you got traded to the Yankees though, what was it what was your time like there? Like it was obviously I believe it was for a year, correct? You were only there for a year. Yeah. So what was your time like in New York with the fans actually being on your side and not fucking roasting you when you're on the in the bullpen or shit? Yeah, I, I was only in the big leagues for like maybe two months or something. I don't remember. I wasn't quite that long, maybe a month and a half. I don't remember what it was. Uh, and I was in AAA most of the time. I actually signed with the Nationals that year. And the first day of the season, I kind of pulled my oblique. And so I was going to be out for like a week. And the Nationals had some dumb rule that if you were out for seven days, you had to go to spring, go to extended spring. And I was like, I'm not going to extended. Like, this is going to – this will be healed up in a week or so. Like, there's no need to put, put me on the phantom for a week. I don't care. But, like – and once they sent me to spring training – I was like, all right, well, I know my time here is over. And I, I got, yeah, again, you think back to a lot of things. It turned out to be one of the best things that happened to me because I only went back to play in 2009 because I want to prove to myself that I can still play baseball. Uh, 08 wasn't a fun experience in Colorado. I sucked in Toronto 06 and 07. Yeah. Uh, so I went back to just play and I went down to extended spring training where I didn't want to be, but I got to be with one other guy. I got to work out with him, just me and him every day, just getting our arm in shape and taking our bodies. And I only threw like one inning in the month I was down there, but I got to kind of be a role model to a lot of the younger guys, you know, having time in the big leagues and they're, they're an extended. And that was, that turned out to be a lot of fun. It was the first time I ever took an appreciation to like the mental skills aspect of it, where I was always like, dude, that's for weak-minded people. Get away from me. Regret doing that. This guy just said something that made sense. And I started listening and that month turned out to be kind of eye-opening. Now I knew that I knew that if I signed with the team, I was staying on the on the East Coast. I knew I was going to AAA somewhere. So I went to Pennsylvania, where my buddy John Parrish had just had uh, labrum surgery on his left arm. So I went to stay at his house, and I was like, "JP, I'm just going to stay with you until I get a call. There's no need me going back to Vegas. I'm not going all the way back to come back." So I went down to Johnny's house, and I made him play catch with me right-handed with his sling, his arm in his sling. Uh, so he put his left-handed glove on, take it off, throw me the ball yeah. back to his front yard. And I remember I threw one inning in a month and extended. And I remember the Yankees called me on Friday. I'm playing catch. And I pulled my phone out of my, my pocket. And uh, they were like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm actually just playing catch right now to stay in shape. And they're like, we need a guy to start on Monday in Louisville. Like, how many innings do you think you can give us if you're willing to sign with us? And I was like, oh, bro, I could be five at least. And he goes, seriously? And I was like, yeah. He goes, you want to come play for us? And I was like, I'd love to play for the Yankees. He's like, all right, I'm going to book a flight. I'll send you the information. I'll fly you out tomorrow to Louisville. You're starting Monday. I was like, perfect. Hang up the phone. And JP goes, five innings? I go, come on, man. You know, I got to say something. He goes, how many do you think you can really give? And I go, I could definitely give one for sure. 
And on Monday in Louisville, I, I took a no-hitter into the fifth. I took a perfect game into the fifth inning. It was four and a third innings, and I gave up back-to-back jacks. <laughs> and, and Eldred comes to the mound, my pitcher coach, and he's like, I got to be honest, man, I appreciate what you just did. He goes, I knew you couldn't go more than one. He goes, I know you have a pitch in a month. And I was like, how'd you know? And he's like, come on, you got to do your homework at some point. And uh, he goes, you're going to be sore. And I go, yeah, I'm going to be hanging for a while. And he starts laughing. And it turned out to be like the, 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 the one of the best seasons I've ever had. Story gets a little long, but it's worth it. Um, all the guys, like Shelly Duncan, he was a part of the fight in Toronto with Alex. He was on the team. He was one of the ones in there throwing some stuff. One of the first dudes to come up to me turned out to be one of the best people I've ever met. Great teammate. Like those guys in AAA, they police themselves. Like it was, I learned how, why the Yankees are so successful and why everybody has so much respect for them once you get there. Cause in AAA, like I was blown away by how well this was ran. Um, on top of the fact that we had a veteran team and the coaches haven't been around and they're phenomenal. Uh, it was probably outside of maybe 05 or maybe the first part of 01, like the best season I've ever had. We were in Pennsylvania, so playing the, uh, maybe the Phillies, I think. And Anthony Claggett just got sent down, but he didn't, he couldn't go back up because it wasn't an injury type situation. So, so Clagg was getting dropped off, and I'm in my hotel room, and I'm pitching good. I didn't give up a run, and, and, and it was like 30 plus innings or whatever it was. And so my phone rings in my hotel room, and it's Brian Cashman. And he's like, hey, we went 18 last night. We need somebody to come up just in case we get extended or whatever. Today, I can't bring Claggett back because it's not an injury-related thing. So I want to I call you to the big leagues. And I was like, you know what, man? Like, just call Flacco up. I was like, Flacco's pitching good. Like, I really don't want to go. Like, I'm in a good place. Uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Like, just call, like, listen, Flacco's doing awesome. Just call him up. He deserves it. And I was like, why are you calling me anyways? Don't you just call the manager? And the manager calls you in the office. And, and he goes, yeah, but I just kind of had a feeling like this conversation was going to happen. I was like, there's no way you could know that I was going to say no to you and turn down an opportunity to go to the big leagues. And, um, he goes, hold on a second. And he clicks over the other line. And I guess he called my agent before he called me. And so Joel had called back and he goes, Hey, that was Joel. He goes, he said, you're going to the fucking big leagues. So get in the car. And I was like, pump the brakes. I'll make this decision. And he goes, let me ask you a question. And I go, what? He goes, you want big league insurance right now? And I said, yeah, my wife's still paying the check since I didn't make the team out of spring training. Like now we have to pay for big league insurance and we have to keep it. He goes, does your wife, he goes, does Kendall enjoy paying that, that check every month? And I go, no, she actually does not like writing that one. And he goes, you know, when I call you the big league, she stops writing that check till next spring training, right? Or to opening day next year. And I said, I know all the rules. He goes, how much money? He goes, let's say hypothetically I called you up for two days. How much money do you think you'd make? I go, collectively? He goes, yeah. I go, I don't know, 50, 60,000? And he goes, yeah, that's exactly what the number is. He goes, like Joel said, get in the fucking car. And I said, fine. I'm done. I said, it's 2 o'clock right now in, 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 in where we're at. I said, it's 2 o'clock. The game's at 4. I'm never going to make the game on time. Uh, New York traffic, there's no chance. Even the car sitting outside. But he goes, yeah, no, I, I, listen, you're not pitching the first five innings anyways. I got a starter. He goes, I need you in case the game was late, extra innings, whatever the case may be. He goes, don't worry about the start of the game. Just get in the car and I'll see you when you get here. And I was like, all right, fine. So I hung up the phone and I got in the car. It was the craziest conversation I've ever had because I don't know why he called me. I don't know why I said no. I mean, I do now, but I don't know why I said no. Like, you just don't turn down opportunities to go to the big leagues. But, I, again, I wasn't playing that year for anything else other than I just wanted to prove to myself that I could play because, again, I was so terrible in Toronto after the contract. I was 
I wasn't bad in the Rockies, but we just got off on the wrong page. and didn't like each other. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't end my career knowing that there was still more in there. And it turned out to be the, like the most fun I've ever had in the big leagues. And so, yeah. So you kind of got that, I guess you could say confidence back where you could kind of look at back on it and be like, dude, I was actually meant to be a big leaguer. Like that 13 and 12 year with a three, seven, one ERA, like that wasn't a fluke. So, I mean, what, so when you, when you step foot in that Yankees clubhouse and you see all these hall of famers around you, were you kind of starstruck or some shit, man? At that point, no. Again, it took me a long time. I told you, it took me a long time to to really have that conversation with yourself that you do belong and that you're one of those guys. It took a long time for me to to, to believe that. Uh, ironically, the first person to come say hello to me was Alex. Welcome <laughs> to the team. What's up? Give me a hug. Like it was it was that was kind of funny, but. Um, it was a, that was a tough situation because, I mean, I got in a fight with Tony Pena. That was the second fight was because of Tony Pena. It wasn't even because of Alex at first base. And, and, and I went at him and Lyle had to grab me back and I was going to go fight Tony because Tony was chirping and, and happened to apologize to Tony Pena when we won the game as the first person standing on the steps waiting for me. That was a tough situation too. Cause I'd said some things that I shouldn't have said publicly. I should have just said to his face. Um, and it was, it was, the whole situation was kind of surreal, but they're just the utmost professionals. And again, you understood why the Yankees were, were and are still so good is because of how everybody carried themselves. And, and it was just like, I've, I, I can't recall ever being on a team. Like I used to sit in the, my locker and, and Teixeira was right here and, and, and Hinsky was right here and Swish was over here. And our locker was so big. It's like Toronto's man. It's so big. And I could play catch with like AJ Burnett or, or Derek Jeter with their locker. I mean, I could play catch with that distance. Our locker is so big. And I used to just sit around and look and, I would talk to E and I would talk to Tashera like, is this how it is every day? And I'm like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, like everybody just talked about what collectively they were going to do, what we were going to do to win the game today and about the other team. And it was never about anybody individually. It was never about stats. It was always a collective conversation about how we were going to win this game today amongst players, not even amongst coaches, amongst players only. And I never really saw a whole team come together like that together and this is late in the season and I think I knew like when I got called up in August the first time is like the first time it hit me I was like this team's gonna win the World Series you look back at the roster now and you're like how did they not win the World Series we got Phil Hughes and Mark Melanson and David Robertson in the bullpen and and David and 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 Mark didn't even play they turned out to be two pretty big time closers in Major League Baseball for you like you had studs on this team and then the depth but I remember we signed Freddie Guzman the last day that you can sign a guy and get him to the big league so that he's on the postseason roster, right? Because I think once you sign him in maybe September or something, whatever the date is, they can't do that. We signed Freddie Guzman the last possible day just to be a pinch runner. He made every postseason roster in the World Series just to pinch run in case the opportunity came where we needed that to happen, which did because everyone was so valuable to us or to them in the way their thought process was. And that's how serious Cashman and everybody took the game in it. And the players took it as serious, and like you just knew. But then again, you look back and you see all the Hall of Famers, and you're like, okay. But there were some pretty good teams that you faced as well along the way. Yeah, for sure. And there's a couple more things here. The second last thing I want to bring up is, is you obviously are Toronto. Like you love the Blue Jays and stuff like that. You're a Toronto guy. I gotta ask you, what's your thought process with the going into this season? Like, what what do you think of this young Blue Jays team? Because I'll tell you right now, I've already bet on them to win the AL East plus five fifty. So I'm buzzing here with the Blue Jays. I love. I think. They're very underrated just based on the fact that they have not that much pitching, but I think they're going to be something serious this year, man. What about you? What do you think? Uh, a couple of things. I think you didn't get good enough odds at 550. Um, 
I yeah, like for the, the AL East. I like the team a lot, but I was going to ask you before you made that comment to name me three players, and I was curious the three names you would say. But you answered it already by saying we don't have enough pitching. It's just like the Angels. I don't care how many Rendones and Mike Trouts and whatever you want to go get. It does not matter. If you can't pitch, you will not win. I don't care. And that's what blows my mind about the Angels is they continue to not go get pitching. I think that they're going to win with hitters. Look at the All-Star game. Why isn't it 10-10 every day? Because pitching beats good hitters all day. That's the longevity of the game. And then the Philadelphia Phillies had a great team a couple of years ago. And you like I knew in August they would start to fade because playing six months is very difficult. And you have to learn your body and when to back off and when to add and the mental grind of playing a whole game. And you need veteran presence to help that. I think the Jays have a ton of pieces in place. And they did bring some veterans in and they had some veterans. And I'm super excited to watch this team play. And I've loved – the building aspect of how they've gone about this to get to where they are. So do I think they're going to be competitive? 100%. Do I think they have a chance where they could possibly do it? Yes. And I know Mark and, and the boys will, will go get pieces as needed as needed. If, if the team's doing, and you went and made trades with the Mets and you got young guys in the, in, in Simi Woods, Richardson, and you got K and you went and did all the right things. I'm super excited about this team. Um, the pitching is going to have to trust themselves. The bullpen is going to have to trust themselves. And if that can happen, I think that, yeah, I think there is an outside shot at this team. But they are built for a long run with some stud players who've had also, by the way, some fathers who played the game. So they've been getting that teaching from a young age. So the game doesn't get as overwhelmed to them as it would to somebody like myself when I got, got, I got brought up. So I think the Jays are in a much better situation than a lot of other teams. And for sure, and obviously you bring up a couple guys that have come on this show as Simeon Woods Richardson, but I think I think Nate Pearson this year is going to have a breakout year. He's a friend of the show. He's been on a couple times. He's my boy. He's my guy. What is your thought process on Nate? This guy throws fucking fuzz. Like, he's gross. I, I, I wish that I could give you more on him. I know his name, and I know he throws hard. I know nothing about him. I've never seen a bitch. You got to watch him, man. I'm telling you. And, and Ryu, obviously, he does what he does. has a sub- Sub three ERA. He does what he does, correct? So I, I think if you can get some sort of like, if they can maybe, if they are playing well and if they can get like a another arm, like a veteran arm or just a guy off a bad team and just kind of add to their three, four, five in the rotation, I think they could be something serious, man. I, I'm not sold on the Yankees, too. I'll say that. I'm not sold on the Yankees. I'm not. Did you have, you have Ross Stripling? Ross Stripling? I never had Ross Ross. We had, the Jays did. Yeah, the Jays had Ross Stripling and now he's gone, I think. So. Uh, I do like – listen, Hinjun Ryu, he's a winner. He knows how to win. And he can pitch deep in the games. He has that experience for, as, as well. And so, you know, if he's willing to teach along the way, I, you know, the guys like Nick Pearson will, will definitely benefit from that. Uh, and obviously, Pete Walker is the man. So, um, you know, there, there's that. Like, I, I just – yeah, there, there is a lot there. It's just, again, it's, it's six months of grind plus spring training. It's cold. It's super hot. It gets cold again. The adrenaline levels. It's there's so many lessons to be learned through time and experience, um, and it's not just the excitement of all these young studs that you have. But again, they've shown progress each year, the last couple of years, and it's it's why not again? And they got more, man. They got Austin Martin coming up from Vandy, arguably the best player in the draft. So I'm excited for it. And the next thing I wanted, to, the last thing I wanted to ask you is. You, you used to be a gambling guy. I'm a degenerate gambler. If you could put $1,000 on a team right now to win the World Series, who would you be the most confident in? Wow. Um, 
I mean, honestly, like clearly the Dodgers are the best team in baseball. Like on paper, it's not, it's not close. It'd be a waste of my money to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, like last year, it's that's tough for me. Like I, I mean, my 100% start the year last year would've been on the Rays. There's no question about that. Uh, even though it didn't happen, you know, San Diego's got a good team. It takes it takes time to gel, and they're loaded as well. So I mean, the odds are very good on them. I, I don't. The American League, I'm not sold on too, too many teams. I mean, the White Sox might be the one team that I think there might be an outside shot on, but I don't know their price value as well. I mean, I would have to look at the numbers because there's not a team that, like, literally stands out, and I have no interest in throwing money on the Dodgers because I just – they got to be favored. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell it to you right now. Then I'll, I'll give you the odds right now, and, I'll t- and we'll, we'll get your little insight here because, like I said, obviously there's a lot of – I mean, you could definitely just look at the roster for the for the the Dodgers. Say the Dodgers. So the Dodgers are plus three fifty, Yankees plus five fifty, Padres plus eight hundred, and the White Sox, like you said, are plus eleven hundred to win the World Series. So there's good value there. And with and I believe the Jays are plus two thousand. So that's a long shot, obviously. But just there's no value with the Dodgers. But I just wanted to say, like, I wanted to get your feedback on who you thought has the best chance because obviously the Dodgers, man, they got Mookie, they just got Trevor Bauer. They're like they're stacked, and it's impossible to even kind of on paper match up with them, right? Yeah, it's, it's seriously impossible. I mean, look, I mean, look at their starting rotation of five guys, and, and you got to factor in like if somebody goes down, they have reserves. The Dodgers still have a great farm system, you know what I'm saying? To back that up, like for instance, the Mets, the Mets are stacked on paper, like they got a really, really good team, but they don't have anything in the farm system. So, what happens when somebody gets hurt? They traded off all their guys to get big league guys. If somebody's not doing their job or if, if players get hurt, which happens over the course of the season, where are they going to go get something from? They really don't have much to go trade and get. They have nothing to really bring up at this moment. So I look at, at the depth of that. So as much as I would like the Mets on paper early, long-term, I don't think that they can get it done. So I got to rule out people like that. Um, I, I think the Braves are a good team. I think the Braves have experience. I still don't know if they have – the finishing product. So, I mean, I would rule out the entire NL East. I'd rule out the entire AL West. Um, and I would start breaking it down that way. Yeah. No, anyways, man, this was a pleasure to have you on. Like I said, I, I grew up watching you, man. I mean, I remember going to those $2 Jays nights when the tickets were legit. And people don't understand this. The Jays used to have games, Toonie Tuesday or whatever. The games were $2 to go and people would still not go. Do you remember those days? I do. Listen, we were bad. We were bad. We were good. Like you got the best of all worlds over there. Anyways, though, man, best of luck to your son at Loyal Marymount. I'll be, I'll be tuned in. I'll be watching him. I'll see. I'll, I'll give him a projection. I'm gonna say he's a 60 grade right now, projected first rounder. But it was a pleasure to have you on, Josh. Man, this was big time. Thank you. Johnny, thank you. Thank you for listening to Officially Unofficial. Make sure you guys subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Official Unofficial Pod and on Instagram at Officially Unofficial Pod. Thank you.